Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning from my side. Um, so good to be here. It's always a delight to preach God's Word, and it's a double delight to preach here at Heritage Baptist. And um, yeah, we are thankful for you, thankful for your support, for your prayers. Uh, it's also wonderful to know that if any members from Poch move to Joburg, they, it's a no-brainer where they join. So it's good to have Tanya, uh, James, Mafolo here, knowing uh, you are in safe hands in a good biblical church. And so that's always a delight for us to know that. And um, so please join me and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we are in the season of our church where we are uh, installing deacons. So we wanted to preach... Uh, the text in 1 Timothy 3 on the qualifications of deacons, but like, like good Baptists, we say, let's do the whole book. Let's not just do one verse, this topical preaching. No, let's focus on the whole book. So that's what we are doing at Pochestrum. And today we're going to look at the secret of a healthy church. That's the title of this, of this sermon. And all of us like secrets. We like to hear secrets. It's uh, always encouraging to hear and to find out, but God's secret is an open secret. God's secrets are revealed to us. He wants us all to know what he has revealed to us in his word. And here we will see one of those secrets, the mystery of godliness um, of a good and healthy church. So read with me God's word, 1 Timothy 3 from verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We ask for your grace and your mercy. Now as we study your word, that you would um, clarify this text to us. Show us the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that this church and um, the churches we are praying for in South Africa as well, and all the churches, Lord, would become healthy in this way, that we would be Christ-centered and focused on Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've ever been in church or part of a church for any extended period of time, you will know that the church can get messy. If you can't say amen, you have to say ouch, okay? That's what Vody Bakko normally says. People act and behave in ways that you would have never expected from another Christian. Or maybe it wasn't people's lives that challenged you, but what you heard from the pulpit was maybe false teaching. You believed it and you practiced it only to find your life being broken and messed up because of what you heard in church. Now, in one sense, you and I should not be surprised because there is nothing new under the sun. These were problems even the early church faced, bad doctrine and bad living. Those were the two 
things that um, made the, the church a challenging place to be. Now, I like to say this, and I don't say this lightly, is that if we have not disappointed you yet, give us more time. Right? If somebody in church hasn't hurt you yet, you probably are not here long enough or you don't know people deep enough. Because the church is made up of people who are still in the middle of their sanctification. We are sinners saved by grace, and only when Christ returns will we, will we be without sin. Now, I'm not talking about false churches who preaches a false gospel or who blatantly contradicts the gospel. I'm rather speaking of churches who are biblical, who'd really desire to follow Christ, honor his name, preaches a biblical gospel. And I'm also not implying in any sense that churches have any excuse for hurting or sinning against you. That's not my point. All I'm saying is this is a reality we ought to expect. To be clear, every person is ultimately responsible for their own choices, and in, and in the end, people's rejection of Christ is always their own fault. Yet, Jesus warned us about being a stumbling block, how serious that is to cause anyone to stumble um, in their attempt to come to Christ. It will be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and to be cast into the depth of the sea. So, beloved, I don't know what has happened to you in church or how you might feel about church. Maybe it was the hypocrisy you've seen, maybe some false teaching you've heard, but our text this morning will show you that Jesus is the secret of a good church, of a healthy church. Our eyes should not ultimately be on any person, on any church building or people, but on Christ himself, our Savior and our Shepherd. He is perfect. We are imperfect. He will never disappoint us. We often do. And so in this, we have to look at what we need to strive to become like. So the book of 1 Timothy, just some background, some context of the book. It's often, note, it's often um, presented as a church manual, as a, go a good book on how to do church. But really, it's a, church, it's a book about how to restore the church. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy where there was a lot of issues, a lot of messiness. There were pastors and elders that had to be put out of the church in church discipline. There were people that were claiming to be experts of the law, teaching a false gospel, emphasizing everything what you need to do instead of on Christ what he has already done. There was even confusion about gender roles, about what is a woman's place in terms of leading the church in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2. And at the end of the book, we see that there was also problems with money. People were focused on everything they have instead of what they will get when Christ returns. So there was a massive emphasis or focus problem in this church. So Timothy is, writ is written for Timothy to restore the church back to what she was supposed to be. And our text acts like, acts like a transition from the instructions to God's family to Timothy himself. It's really the heart of the letter. So we will see two purposes in our text. First, the purpose of the letter, and secondly, the purpose of the church. Those would, that would be the outline for this morning. So first, consider with me the purpose of the letter. Read with me verse 14 to 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I love it when the Bible does that. So whenever you see an author say, I write this so that. You should highlight it, circle it, and then read the whole letter again in that context. 
Okay, so Paul says, I, love, I would want to be with you in person, but now I'm writing to you so that you can know how you ought to behave. The you here, when he says, so that you may know, is singular in the Greek. Paul says, you, Timothy, I'm writing this to you as one man to know how you ought to behave or how the church is to behave in the household of God. It shows what a massive responsibility rests on the leaders of the church to ensure the health of the church. If the pastors and the elders do not know what God wants, do not know how to equip the saints, how can the sheep, the ordinary sheep, know? Now, I want to make a side application here that I think is critically important for our time today. It is the obvious observation that Timothy will know what God wants him to do in church by reading 1 Timothy. Now, I meant to say thanks for the obvious, Pastor. But notice what he does not say. He does not say, Timothy, wait for a vision to know what God wants for this church. Or you must, have, you must wait for the Holy Spirit to press it upon your heart to know the specific direction you need to go. No, Timothy, I am writing these things that you may know. The Bible is sufficient to guide the Christian pastor and elder into the will of God. And it's sufficient to guide you to know the will of God for your life. To know the will of God, you need to read the will of God, the revealed will of God. Please come with me briefly to 2 Timothy 3, a very, very well-known passage, but it's good to just emphasize this point here as well. 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The man of God here in context, I believe, is the pastor, the elder. So the question is this, how much of the scriptures will equip the man of God and by implication, the church of God for good works? How many good works do we need to go to the Bible for to be equipped? Well, the text says every good work, we need to go to the scriptures and ask, what does it say? And beloved, how quickly you will mature in your Christian faith if you learn to ask this one question from any teacher, any person um, claiming to preach to you the truth, is this question, where is that in the Bible? Recently, I've heard a pastor teach people how to flow in the Holy Spirit. What, what should you ask if you hear that? Where is that in the Bible? Where does Jesus teach us that? Where does the apostles teach us that? Where do we find examples of flowing in the Spirit? And, you know, these, these pastors, these teachers will often say things like this. You know, this is not often taught in church. Well, yes, because it's not in here. That's why it's not often taught. You've made it up. Now, that might be an extreme example, but there are so many things like that, beloved. That's why we ought to be good Bereans when we hear the scripture, when we hear the sermon preached, we should ask, is this what the scriptures say? That's why it's always a good idea to have your Bible with you or switch your Bible on right today. But have your Bible in front of your face when you listen to the preaching of God's word that you can see for yourself whether it makes sense that this is what the Bible teaches. So how thankful should you and I be that in this book, God has spoken to us. He's spoken to us clearly, sufficiently, everything we need to live holy lives for him. So back to 1 Timothy 3, that was the purpose of the letter. But now Paul also tells us the purpose of the church. And he gives us the purpose of the church in verse 15. Just look at verse 15 again. It says, 
that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In this text, we see two basic purposes for the church. Number one, to live godly lives, holy lives, how to behave, and to uphold the truth. So it's right doctrine and right living. That would be a very basic uh, summary of what the church is to be about. If either one of those purposes are neglected, the purpose of the church is not fulfilled. So consider the first purpose with me, to live godly lives. This is the main thing Timothy is told to do, that you may know how one ought to behave. Now, you can better translate that as how to conduct, how to live in the household of God. God cares about how we live. Our lives are to beautify or adorn the doctrine of God, to make the gospel look attractive by the way we live. Our best apologetic, our best defense is our lives as we share the gospel as well. And that conduct will look like real love between one another. Remember, what did Jesus say? How will the world know that we are his disciples? If we have love for one another. That's why it's called the household of God. We have seen that word before in chapter 3. Just look, glance over to chapter 3, verse 4. One of the qualifications of an elder is he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? You see, what the word household here is not mainly thinking of a building or the place we meet, but the people inside that place, the family of God. That's how we ought to view church, not as an event to go to, but a people to worship with. We gather to worship, we scatter to witness. And so we see the church as our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers. This anticipates what he will write in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, when he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So this is part of godly living, is true love for the saints, for the members of the church, as, as your brothers, your sisters, and even being sensitive to the generational gaps there might be between us, treating all the men as fathers, all the women as mothers, with respect and all dignity. And that is why, beloved, forgiveness is so essential for the church to survive. It is impossible to live together, regularly meet together, share our lives together, and not sin against each other. That would be, at best, a superficial relationship. If you have been married for longer than a week, you will know what, it, what I'm talking about, right? Two people in marriage, living together, sharing life together, sin against each other. But the marriage that lasts, it's not two people behaving perfectly to, to, uh, against one another or to one another, but the people who have learned to consistently forgive one another and to consistently repent from their sins. That's the marriage that lasts. I love Peter. Peter is such a human being. When he asked this question to Jesus in Matthew 18, he says, Lord, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often? How often will my brother or my husband or my wife or a Christian sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I would say that one of the biggest killers of church marriages 
is unforgiveness. Not the only one, but one of the biggest ones. And we need to remember Paul's words in Ephesians 6 verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is the devil's desire to use our anger, our hurt, our bitterness, and to, and to, to, to tore us, tear us apart. Earlier in Ephesians 4, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil no opportunity. Why do you think he puts that so close to our anger and our bitterness? That is the open door. Loved ones, I'm not saying that the church or anybody else had had the right to sin against you or hurt you. I'm not even saying it is wrong for you to leave a particular church because of some sin or some disqualifying aspect of that church. All I'm saying is that no relationship survives without true forgiveness. I don't know, some of you might be sitting with that burden of unforgiveness, of bitterness. This morning, lay it down. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Remember what Christ has done for you. He loved his enemies. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Remember God's love for you and let that free you to do what he called you to do. So being a family does, does not just remind us that we have an obligation towards one another to love one another, but it especially should remind you of God's love for you. 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. By grace, we are adopted children of God. Not because we were worthy, but because Christ took our sins on the cross, satisfied the wrath of God for all of our sins, and now we are free to have fellowship with Him. That too is essential to live a godly life. To be the family of God is to believe that you are part of the household of God, His family, and that He loves you. There is another description which Paul highlights in this passage. Not just are we the household of God. Look at what verse 15 says. We are the household of God, but we are also the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Before that, I wanted to point point your attention to the word living God. Notice that he's the living God. It reminds us that we are God's dwelling place. In contrast to man-made idols, to man-made gods whom we have to create and we have to nail down to keep them in place. No, we are the church of the living God. Our God is not dead. John Calvin commented and said, There are good reasons why God should call the church his house. For not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. So how encouraging that even in a small church, I wouldn't count this a small church, but even in a small church in Ephesus that might have been in the context of the great temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to call that little congregation the church of the living God, the temple of God. That's our identity. We are to be mindful of that. We live in his presence amongst one another. And that's especially important when church gets messy, to remember God is living. What we do as human beings doesn't change anything about God. He remains God. He remains true. You see, it is actually the height of of folly to reject a perfect God because of imperfect people. 
I love another example by Peter in John 6, this attitude in John 6, 66. He says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, it doesn't matter what other people do. You have the truth. You have the words. If we leave you, where do we go? To a false God, to a false religion, to no religion, which is a kind of a religion in itself. No, beloved, if you reject God, where will you go? To whom shall you go? The truth remains the truth. And that leads us to the second purpose of the church. The first is to live a godly life, to be holy in love for God, love for one another, but also, secondly, to uphold the truth. We are to live godly lives and we are to uphold the truth. That's the image of verse 15 when it says the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The truth needs no support in one sense. Two plus two is four in Africa and in China. In any time of the day, truth cannot change. It's, it's outside of us. Truth corresponds to reality, whether you believe it or not. Yet, the church can uphold the truth, be a pillar and a buttress of it to, to show the world what the truth is. That's one of the purposes of the church. If you think of a pillar, a pillar is supporting a structure, but it's also holding the roof high for all to see. That's what the church is to do with the gospel. We uphold the truth of the gospel for all to see. And when they look at our lives, they see that it is impacting us and changing us. Sadly, many pastors are like Samson. Many Christians are like Samson who break the pillars with their own strength and kill themselves in the process and others. They don't want to uphold the pillars. They don't want the truth to be held high. We see that emphasis in chapter 4, verse 16. Just glance over there again with me. It says, Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What happens when the Timothys, the pastors, do not watch themselves to live godly lives and watch the teaching, the truth? What will happen? The text says they will be lost and their hearers will be lost. Much is at stake when we don't uphold the truth anymore. Again, is it not true that sometimes people reject the truth because of how we live and how we behave? They've heard false teaching, and when it doesn't work, they give up. But beloved, these two purposes are important for a healthy church. Godly living and the truth. Bad theology hurts people. Bad living hurts people. But what is the secret to it all? How can we be godly? And what is the standard of truth? This is like where the classic Sunday school question comes, right? Who built the ark? Jesus. Yes, Jesus helped. It's Noah who built the ark, right? So when I ask you, what's the secret? You might be, but in this case, it is the secret. It is Christ. Jesus is the standard of godliness, and he is the truth. Truth is a person. That's how Paul ends this section with the mystery of godliness. That is the secret of our healthy church. And these two purposes are united in one person. When we read in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Many of you will know the word mystery 
refers to not something difficult to understand, but something impossible to understand until God has revealed it to us. Something that was concealed but now revealed. And so that mainly speaks of truth or doctrine, but godliness then refers to what? Our lives, us being like Christ. So here we have the two together, the mystery of godliness, and both of them are united in a person. Jesus is the secret. Christ is the way, the truth, in the life. To be godly is to be like Christ. It's not to keep a set of do's and don'ts. It's to imitate him, to follow him, to be more patient, more kind, more loving of the lost, more holy angry when God's name is being defamed and blasphemed among us. That is holiness. We, like John the Baptist, our heart's cry is, he must increase, we must decrease. And this changes the standard of everything. When you come to church and when you come to the Bible studies, you should have a longing to see Christ, to see, a, to, to see his glory. We should all be like the Greeks who came to Philip and said, sir, we would see Jesus. We don't just want to come and leave here smarter than the next person. We want to see Christ. And godliness, again, we want to be like Christ. And therefore, the church that has lost its emphasis, its focus, its centrality on him will inevitably lose everything else. One commentator summed it up perfectly. He says, in Christ's person and work lies the key to the strength and flourishing of the faith community Timothy oversees along with its missiological edge. Christ is the key. And when it said great is the mystery, the readers of of this letter would have thought of the, the, the riots in Ephesus that would have said, great is Artemis of, Di- of, of Ephesus. But Paul says, we, have, we too have a confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's Christ. So we speak into even our culture. When people are amazed and dazzled by things, we are dazzled by Christ and we share him. So these six, six lines all focus on Christ, his person and his work. And there are many different uh, opinions or ways to to structure it, but I'm just going to take it line by line. I think that's the easier. So line one reminds us that he was incarnate. He was manifested in the flesh. That's what verse 16 says. He was manifested in the flesh. The word was with God and the word became God, or was God and became flesh. This refers to the Son of God adding to himself, not losing anything, but adding to himself a second nature, a human nature. It means that God, and in this context, in 1 Timothy, there's a fountain of applications for us here. Remember the false teaching in chapter 4 said that they were forbidding marriage and foods which God has created to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. So the false teacher said, if you want to be really holy, you should abstain from food and marriage. But no, Christ became flesh. God is not against the physical world, the physical creation. He's made it for our delight and our joy. The problem is, as the prayer showed, is that when we idolize those things, when we worship the creation rather than the creator, but we should not thereby conclude we should not enjoy the creation. So this Christmas, feast. Enjoy good food and let that satisfy you and then remind yourself that Christ became man. Here we have a text of meditation for Christmas. Take these lines, memorize it, meditate upon it. It's rich. That's the first line. Second line is, he was vindicated by the Spirit. 
The Spirit descended on Christ in His baptism. The Spirit empowered Christ for His ministry. But ultimately, the Spirit vindicated Christ at His resurrection. Romans 1 verse 4 reads, it says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now think about it. The cross was the ultimate proof for the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Jesus was a fake. They said, how could the Messiah be crucified? How could Christ, the Messiah, become a curse? Because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, he saved others. He can't even save himself. But that's the point. If he stayed dead, he would not have been vindicated. But he was vindicated by the Spirit when he was risen from the dead. He was who he said he was. He is the man. There were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and they died. They laid down their lives for that witness and that testimony. What a source of comfort for you and me as Christians. What an essential truth the church is to be a pillar and a buttress of. Christ has been vindicated by the Spirit. Line 3 says, seen by angels. Now, again, this can refer to his birth, his ministry, and his resurrection. The angels were involved everywhere. But angels can also be translated as messengers. So the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. So along with heavenly witnesses, we have earthly witnesses as well, testifying that they have seen him, they have touched him, they have held him. Our faith corresponds to reality. It is based on eyewitnesses. It's not something that we would just want to believe or hope to be true. It is true. You can build your life on this. Line 4 reads that he was proclaimed among the nations. Christ is the Christ of the nations, both for Israel and Palestine. All peoples need him, need to see his glory. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. Your, your heart and my heart should always long for His name to be worshipped in every corner of the world. Line 5 says, He was also believed on in the world. So not only is Christ the Christ of the world, the gospel has the power to change any culture, any tradition, any background. When the gospel penetrates a society, a culture, it just changes that culture. Like a story of Papua New Guinea, so when they, those people came to Christ, they build a little, uh, little building for their, like, almost like a gazebo for their church building. Now, of course, in that culture, because um, the Christians have left the ancestors and left um, those sacrifices behind, the unbelievers are blaming the Christians for all of their sicknesses and all of their problems because the ancestors are angry. So what the unbelievers did, they, they came and they burned down the church building. And when the believers came, when the Christians came, they found the church in ashes. They found the unbelievers there. They stopped them before leaving and says, please, can we just cook a meal for you? And they used the embers of their own church building to cook a meal for unbelievers. Because how can they leave without eating? What is that? What is that? A pagan culture transformed from the inside out to love their enemies. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does to people like you and me. What an awesome reality to be part of God's mission. And lastly, we read, taken up in glory. 
Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and from where we await his return to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, he will make all things new. The songs we've been singing were so beautiful, so hopeful. He wipes away every tear from our eyes. The God of all comfort. We on earth suffer for a little while. But when he comes, he will make us new into his image. Beloved, this is the secret, the mystery of godliness. It is Christ. Everything's about him, to know him, to trust him, to obey him. He is a perfect Savior, a perfect Messiah, the one who has come to save sinners, sinners like you. And the good news is that he promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So dear church, this is to be your purpose, to live godly lives, to uphold the truth. And if you are standing on the outside, if you do not know Christ, why would you reject him if he is this perfect Savior? His promise was this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of spirit, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So repent from your sins, repent from your self-centeredness, repent from your idol worship. Come to Christ, find life in him. Jesus is the seeker of everything and the very reason you exist. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that both your word is sufficient for us and also your son is sufficient for our needs, our hearts, our sin, our struggles. He is the God-man. He is the mediator between God and men. To him we can, we can come with all of our struggles and issues. And thank you, Lord, that you have given him freely to us. You have not withheld your only son. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to to long to be like him and to uphold the truth about him as well. Thank you for a, a faithful church right here in Johannesburg. Thank you for Heritage Baptist Church that, that already is doing many of the things we've seen. Protect this church from bitterness, from unforgiveness. Lord, help the church here to be quick to repent, quick to reconcile, quick to love one another. May this church also not just be a light here, but a light to the nations as we seek to share the gospel with all peoples for the honor and glory of your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.